Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller, an African-American, licensed psychotherapist, professor, diversity coach, consultant, and author. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, we'll have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Keonia Williams, CEO of Healing Black Souls, grew up in North Jersey, a predominantly Black community where she was consistently reminded of her Blackness at home and in school. At a young age, Williams knew she wanted an impactful life that enriched and empowered others. Keonia specializes in culturally specific, Afrocentric psychotherapy, coaching, and consulting for individuals, groups, organizations, and families. She believes in the power of change, and that is what maintains her motivation. Keonia's goal is to serve her community by educating, supporting, and empowering it so each person, family, or organization is able to reach their highest potential. Please join me in welcoming Keonia Williams to change the narrative with J.D. Fuller. Super nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's really a challenge. I've said this before to other clinicians who have come on. I don't know what it is, but it's really difficult to get clinicians, police, and lawyers come on a podcast. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Therapists, clinicians surprises me. The others, not so much, but clinicians, that surprises me. Maybe that's because I've done so many, but that surprises yeah. me. Well, and the ones that have come on have said the same thing. I'm so surprised. I'm like, yeah, no, I got to work for it. Wow. Because we usually love to talk, right? I know. That's what I think. Anyway, I know. I know. (laughs) So let's get into a little bit of your background. And I'm going to base it on themes because I want people to know what your belief system is, but also what your background is. All right. Okay. you, You said that you developed a strong cultural identity and a sense of Black pride. Now, I find this amazing. Because when I was growing up many years before you, we were just all trying to fit in where we could get in. So how did this happen for you? How did you manage to do that? I think that it's because of where I grew up. Of course, today, most previously Black utopias are gentrified. So I grew up in North New Jersey and it was, I would say, 95 percent Black. So that's why all my teachers, most of the people in the city, police officers, firefighters, clinicians, mostly everyone was Black. So I think that is what that was. And so basically, you know, at home, learning about Blackness and understanding Blackness and racism, et cetera, et cetera, that was reinforced at school because 90% of my teachers looked like me. So... I would say that's why that was my experience. I don't think that would be the case today, but that was my experience like 30 plus years ago. I'm officially jealous. (laughs) Most people are. Most people are. (laughs) Okay, so you said from a very young age, you knew that you wanted to do something that would enrich and empower the lives of others. You always had a passion for working with underserved, underrepresented, underprivileged communities. Now, this is one of the things that led you to social work. So was there something in your life that was a significant catalyst for this trajectory? I can't pinpoint like a specific situation or story. I grew up in the inner city, really, really rough inner city. So lots of poverty, lots of crime, lots of drugs. 
broken homes, et cetera. And so for me, getting out of that situation and moving to another part of the country and going to college and seeing that there was more to life than what I had grown up in and what I was exposed to, I would say that that was the point in time in my life, like in my early teenage years, where I realized like I wanted to be a part of the change. Like I wanted to be a part of educating other people that looked like me, that there is more to life than just what we see, right? Because you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what you can't see, right? You can't imagine what you can't see. And so for me, it was really more so getting out of that environment that gave me that passion. I think that before that, I knew I wanted to do something because I've always had a lot of great, powerful Black teachers. And so initially I was like, I want to be a teacher, right? I want to be that person. I had teachers that would, you know, just say really positive things to me and always gave me positive affirmation. So I knew like when I was younger, that was something that I wanted to do for someone and for younger people. That was a part of it. But yeah, I think more so getting out of the inner city and being exposed to just different ways of life, different ways of being, different ways of living that really gave me the motivation. I really have to like educate my people. So yeah, no, that totally makes sense. sense. I also mm-hmm. feel like you're starting to now just rub it in my face. <laughs> I think I think it's over the top now. <laughs> the inner city has such a bad rap and the blackness that's attached to it. And it's unfortunate because... All I hear are the incredible rich stories. We left the projects when I was seven. We were the first black family in a white neighborhood. There were things about it that were just so tough all of the time. And I saw my friends who stayed and just the richness and the camaraderie and the connection, so powerful. And it gets so lost in gentrification. It gets so lost when you're trying to get out. And at the same time, you lose something in getting out. And that's what I hear you sharing right now. Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting because as I talk to a lot of Black professionals and folks that I guess you could say got out and made it, I think that it's hard because it's almost like we have to compromise or sacrifice to a degree, right? Are there very many rich Black neighborhoods, right, where you don't have to lose who you are, right? Or You don't have to choose to like safety versus quality of education for your children. It's it's almost always like we have to pick and choose, right? Like, why can't we have it all? And that just really the unfortunate part, I feel, for us Black folks that are, you know, more so elevated. I don't want to say necessarily educated, but just wanting to live a better quality of life and wanting to give that to our children as well. It's almost like we're conflicted sometimes. I don't think it's almost, I think it's exactly like we're conflicted. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. the choices we have to make come with a selling out factor. And no matter how hard we try, we have to make choices that feel like we're selling out. Absolutely. I would agree with that. 100 percent. All right. I'm going to shift the focus a little bit to a point in your career that stood out for me, which is you've worked in the foster care system. I'm going to tell you right away, I have incredibly strong feelings about it. I also worked with the system. Can you reflect on your experience there? What was it like for you? I, like you, have issues and feelings about it, too. So I would say that most of my work was really on the preventative side. I never actually worked 
um, like in the system, in the system, I worked outside of it. So like supporting families that might have had children in the child welfare system. Right. So I was the advocate in supporting families and navigating that system. I never actually worked for the system itself. I licensed and managed foster homes. So I was really more so out of the system, still very much a part of it, but not working, like taking children away, that kind of thing. Okay. Right. But still very familiar with with the inner workings of the system. And I, all I can say about it is just, it's typical. Everything that we, all the statistics and things that we hear are true, right? Black children are more likely to be removed from homes, right? Not placed in homes with people that look like them. And just, you know, all the things that we hear, like all of those things are true. And I feel I consciously made a choice to work on the preventative side and the advocacy side because I knew for sure, like, I could not, like, work actually in the system where I was, like, taking a part of taking, removing children and things like that. So I was very much on the advocacy side. I was on the advocacy side as well. I was an outpatient therapist in the inner city and so collaborated, I'm using, using air quotes, mm-hmm. with, with workers in the system. And it's a nightmare. I have one question, one question only. I've repeated it. Why aren't they taking all of the money they pay to remove children and pay foster parents? Why aren't they putting that into the home, removing the perpetrator if there's a perpetrator and securing the base, providing resources and services to keep families together? There is no good that comes from removing children from their home. No good at all. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Honestly, because the system is working the way that it was designed to work. Damn. So, I mean... Yeah, that's like we know a lot of the answers. We know what needs to happen. Right. But the system is working the way that it was like we're not as a society. We don't care about families and we definitely don't care about black families. Let's be clear. Right. We don't care about preventative. We don't care about giving family support and resources. It's just a lot of performative as a society. I'm saying I'm not speaking of us individually, but. Yeah, as a society, we don't care about keeping the Black family intact and supporting and providing the resources. So we use the resources to do things that are counterproductive, just like you mentioned. Like, we're spending the money on doing everything but what's going to actually support the family in staying together and getting what they need as a family unit. Because we know a lot of the things that's going on is a direct reflection of the lack of resources in the home. A lack of resources, a lack of education, a lack of exposure, the list goes on. Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember working on the front line in L.A. and having a kid tell me that, you know, you're in L.A. Everybody thinks everybody's seen the beach and have a kid telling me in foster care that they had never seen the beach. Mm. I mean, that's just a simple example of how the system is set up to prevent, you know, exposure as you Mm -hmm. refer to it. All right. We we said enough about that. We can move on. (laughs) I just, wanted to, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on it. Okay. Um, so many therapists, we're going to move into therapy a little bit. Many therapists, you know, you're an adjunct professor, as am I. Many therapists believe that their prejudices and racism can be kept outside of the therapeutic relationship. What's your belief? What is your belief in your experience? I think that is the hugest problem with therapy in itself. And I think that It's not that it's not a problem for others, but I think it's a really big problem for white folks. But let me say what I mean. I'm not a practicing clinician right now. I was for many years, but that's not my focus right now. 
But I will say that there is no way for me to practice therapy and keep that separate from me as a person, as a Black woman, right? Especially because I work with my people. Like, and so I think that to think that you can practice and keep that separate from who you are as an individual, your belief systems and your values is absolutely ridiculous, right? And we all have bias. I teach a course on, on it, actually. But so, for example, I'm biased against folks in the realm of addiction, right? So I'm aware of that bias, right? And so it would behoove me to not serve that population. And if I am serving that population, to make sure that I am checking in with myself and staying present with myself and my bias in that, right? So I'm not sure where, well, I am sure academia, right? It is definitely not, it doesn't teach us how to be therapists, just to be frank. So I think academia is a huge part of the reason why a lot of white therapists in particular think that they can separate who they are as a person from who they are as a therapist. And it's harming the populations that they're serving, right? So if you are not practicing from an anti-racist lens, then you're doing the opposite. (laughs) That's just what it is, right? And we all have to be practicing from that way because we're all steeped in the poison, right? In one way or another. So if we're not checking in with our values and our belief systems and how that's showing up for us in our professional life, then we're being problematic. And to think that though that we can separate and compartmentalize that is just really crazy to me. I want to add another layer that it has to get elevated to the BBS and to systems who take responsibility for licensure to Absolutely. begin to teach this as an unethical aspect of the practice. Do no Absolutely. harm. Absolutely. How are you not doing harm if you're not aware of who you are individually and how you bring your beliefs into the room? Absolutely. And how are you feeling like you can separate that? Like you can't separate who you are as a person from the work that you're doing, especially with the work that we're doing because it's so intimate, right? It's a degree of separation. Like we are really getting in there and getting personal with folks and sharing and all of that. And so I think, I do think that there are a lot of folks who think, oh, we can separate, you know, don't get too enmeshed with your clients. Of course, there's professional boundaries and ethics and things like that. But I don't have the ability to separate who I am as a Black woman from the work that I do with my community. And I, and quite frankly, I don't want to. That's what keeps me passionate. And that's what keeps me impactful in the work that I'm doing because I am my community. My community is me, right? And so I care about your well-being. And it is my personal belief and responsibility, your well-being, right? And the interconnectedness of the work that I do. And so we don't see, I don't think as a professional, we don't see it that way. We don't see and value the interconnectedness and we don't value the humanity of the people that we serve. So I think that's why it's easy for some folks to say, oh, I can leave that at the door. And just, and it's just like, okay, whatever you say. Yeah, yeah that's beautifully said. Thank you. I get uh, mixed reviews and a lot of negative reviews on the fact that I'll come into a classroom and say, let me just put this disclaimer out here. I teach through my blackness. It's so unpopular. <laughs> and that's so interesting because I am the same way. I, I use Afrocentric perspective, theory, et cetera, whatever you want to call it. I call it a lifestyle or I call it a way of being for the sake of academia. We could say Afrocentric 
theory, mm-hmm. perspective, whatever, right? It's a lifestyle. And I tell all my students, which they're predominantly white, I teach at Portland State University. So it's a pr- predominantly white university. But I let them know, you're going to get Afrocentric from me, period. <laughs> and in the lecture, in the literature, and all that we do, that's what you're going to get. And so if that's not what you want, this class is taught by others. So do, do with that information <laughs> what you like. You know, and what's amazing to me is, and I've said this to them as well, white professors, professors from other cultures do the exact same thing. They just don't put it out there as directly as I do. So it's interesting Mm -hmm. that you become offended by my directness and honesty. And you'd rather have the disillusion that others are doing something different. Right, right. Exactly. Fascinating. Exactly. So currently you said you specialize in culturally specific counseling, coaching, consulting for individuals, groups, organizations, and families. So a question I've heard from white clinicians repeatedly why do some people, clinicians, say that Black people should only receive therapy from Black clinicians, mm. yet Black clinicians can treat other cultures in all of the capacities above? Okay, so I'm going to say this. Going, I'm going to start with Afros, the Afrocentric perspective. It was created for Black folks, right, specifically because of our unique history with this country, right? However, it's really, the main premise is a deep value and respect for humanity. So for me, that's why I can work with everybody because I have a respect for humanity all together, right? And so that's how I answer the question of like, why can't we work with everybody? Because we don't have the perspective of anti-Blackness and racism, et cetera, et cetera, right? That is our experience in this country, but that's not the way that we operate as a culture, as a people, in my opinion. As far as Blackness goes, and as far as therapy, I am one of those people who believe that Black people should receive therapy from Black people. And there's even Black folks who will be like, no, that that is my opinion. And I stand firm in that. And it's because of the historical generational trauma that we've experienced in this country. For me, on a personal level, there are some things. Therapy is a very sacred a vulnerable experience. And I feel like there's something that I don't want to have to do in that space. I feel like as a Black person, seeing therapy from another Black person, there's one thing I can do. I can show, it, show up and be my full self, right? There's not many spaces we could do that in general. And so I feel like in the therapeutic setting, more than anywhere else, I need to be able to show up in my full, full blackness. And I do not think that I can do that in a space with a white therapist. And I don't think any black person can. And I know folks will argue that point with me, but that is my opinion. I don't think that. And there are some there's a level of explaining and breaking down the barriers that you as a black person that would have to do with another person, a white person, a Hispanic person, an Indian person, et cetera. Right. Like we have a we have an unspoken language. We have unspokenness in our culture, right? I could give you a look and you could be like, mm-hmm, without even saying a word. You know what I'm saying? So it's like being able to have that with your therapist, I think it's priceless. And so, um, and, and just certain things, although there might be like a privilege factor, like I have resources, right? I have the resource of education, et cetera, et cetera, right? So there might be a disconnect there with my clients, but in terms of 
Blackness, racism, what it means to be Black. Growing up in the inner city, there are a lot of things that I can relate to and identify as a Black person that another person, even another non-white person that's not a Black person, would not be able to relate to or identify with. So, yeah, that's how I see it. You know, I'm going to add one thing that you said when you said the disconnect between maybe a class perspective or an academic perspective. I don't see education as a privilege. We've had to do a lot of sacrifices to have our education in place. We've mm-hmm. had to sacrifice on many levels. That's not privilege. That's just, that's that's access, which is different for me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I, I, I like how you're explaining that. You use the word privilege in terms of academia and, and having access to education. I still don't see that as privilege. I see mm. that as all the sacrifices we've had to make uh, with the inequities. There's no privilege in there. Mm. So maybe there's a class difference or an academic level difference, but it's difference. It's not privilege. Okay, I like that. New perspective for me, and I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't want to homogenize that word. I don't want to homogenize that word. Absolutely. So let's talk about access. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think it's access. So Absolutely. let me see. All of the clinicians from the global majority with whom I have connected are on the same page. We're all about destigmatizing, decolonizing mental and medical health for the communities. Talk to me about your efforts through your program, HealingBlackSouls.org. I love the name. And as your role as an adjunct professor, talk about how you are destigmatizing and decolonizing mental health, will you? Yeah, so I'll talk about it in terms of mental health, specifically with Black folks. I feel like, to me, a huge part of destigmatizing it is that, first of all, I like to say I practice in a non-traditional way, right? So. I don't think that mental health support only takes place in an office 50 minutes a week, right? And also, specifically for our community, really normalizing why it is that a lot of us struggle with mental health issues, right? First first of all, it is my opinion that you cannot be Black in America and not have PTSD, We all have PTSD. There's no way that you can be Black in America and not have PTSD, right? So for me, it's really more so educating folks and normalizing, like, all those things we were exposed to, that we experienced, that we seen, that family dysfunction, none of that's normal. (laughs) And it's enough, it's enough to make anybody go crazy, right? It's enough to make anybody make the decisions that some of us have made, whether that be addiction, just repeating the cycle, doing what our parents did, broken homes, choosing relationships with not the healthiest person. So for me, it's really about understanding why we are where we are as a community and then supporting folks in realizing you can make a different decision, right? You can make different choices. You can put yourself in different situations and positions. It takes support. It takes understanding who you are, why you're in this predicament, things of that nature. I just I think that we as a society and sometimes us black folks, it's like mental health, mental health. And it's like I think it's great. But it's like now folks are like 
if mental health is just about going to therapy. And I don't want to minimize that because I think that it's great that a lot of us are going to therapy and we're going to therapy with folks that look like us, right? Folks that are practicing from this non-Eurocentric way. I think that's great. But I also think it's other things too. It's the spiritual aspect of things. It's just shifting our mindset. It's creating possibilities and opportunities that we didn't have, right? Creating that for our children, right? And financial literacy, things like that. Like it's all associated with mental health. So I think that we have to draw in the mental health conversation beyond just therapy, if that makes sense. Like really educating folks, even like what, why would you go to therapy, right? How do you interview a therapist? What should you expect from therapy, right? What should you, like, how do you know you're even ready to take that step, right? Just, it's just so, so much more of a bigger picture than just like going to, to therapy, right? And, and I don't want to minimize that. And I don't want to say that's not a big step or a huge accomplishment, but I think that it's time to really expand the way that we see mental health and therapy and going to see a therapist is really just a small aspect of it. It's so much bigger than that, right? Yeah, I like that. I like that. Look, it's an integration. It's a whole person perspective. So absolutely, I, I don't think anything's wrong with that. Right, uh, I, right, I, I right. Agree. Seeing naturopathic doctors, going to see a chiropractor, going to get massage, all those things are a part of supporting our mental health and helping us get to a place where we can make better decisions and clear our mental space because our mental space is clouded for a lot of different reasons. Trauma, vital, you know. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and poverty. We cannot remove poverty from the situation at hand. Poverty is the, a huge catalyst that we continually overlook and people put race in its place and it's poverty. Absolutely. Like, you put yes. po- poverty, there's going to be deeper mental health issues. I mean, that Absolutely. just goes without saying. It should go without saying. Let me say that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So you brought up spirituality, which you must be looking at my notes here because you jumped ahead. So I'm just going to get into it. So let's talk about the intersectionality of religion, spirituality, and mental health. How do you see that? And how does one inform the other? Because I'm just going to clarify what I mean by that. There is religion slash religiosity, which takes on forms of a cult-like experience. And then there is spirituality, which can be individual, but also community, Mm -hmm. but it's not as steeped in the cult-like experience. And then there's mental health, which you've alluded to, looks many different ways in collective cultures. Absolutely. And therapy is one way. And there is also community building and other ways, but it can be all of the above. But I do see really religiosity as more on the outside. I'm curious about how you see it. Yeah, I think for me, I don't believe in religion at all. And I'm, I'm glad you said it's like cult like that cult like that's how I see it. But I think that sometimes because I think a huge part of our culture is steeped in religion and Christianity specifically, which I believe was birthed out of our Afrocentric spirituality. Right. And I think that it means so much and it's different for all of us. Right. And so for me, I think that um Culturally, a lot of our spirituality was stripped from us. And I think that 
even just things, the way that I incorporate it in my practice is that with Black folks specifically, is that even just like, oh, I felt it in my gut or something told me I shouldn't have done that. Or um, I just knew, you know, I, I, for me, that's how I incorporate spirituality and use, use that to teach folks like, that is your spirit speaking to you. <laughs> like the universe creation gives us that to, to tap into who we are. Like everything that we need, all the answers that we need is it's within us. Right. And so the things that have been done to us historically was intentional because we have superpowers, right? Like we have what we need. And so the thing of this world is intentionally done to keep us disconnected. And for me, that's spirituality, right? Like connecting with your life source, which is Mm -hmm. you, right? Connecting with your soul, connecting with your inner. And that is where healing Black souls came from because healing our souls is very much on a spiritual level and connected to our mental health, right? If we are not healed and connected on a spiritual level, and I'm saying spiritual level, and for I realized for Black folks, that could, meet, that could be attached to Christianity. That could be attached to religion, right? And I'm not saying that's wrong, but whatever is disconnecting you from self, from your inner, is the problem. And that is the goal, is that you need to get back to self. Need mm. to get back to your wholeness, your spirit, right? and for me, that's spirituality. And for some folks, I I know that might be Christianity or whatever it is. Yeah. But for me, that's that's spirituality, and everything about being black and being African is spirituality. And I think that a lot of us, again, we've been disconnected, we've been misinformed, we've our history has been stolen from us, and then taken and presented to us in the form of Christianity. And I think that's why a lot of us connect so much with Christianity, because you got to have something in there that's familiar to the people in order to trick them. <laughs> mm. So just like the cross was stolen from the Ankh, right? The symbol of life, the African symbol of life. So it's all our stuff, right? It just depends on what resonates with us, what doesn't resonate with us. But for me, it doesn't matter if you are a Christian, if you are a Jehovah Witness. To me, it matters that you are not disconnected from who you are as a African, as a Black person, right? That's yeah. the goal. And that is what's going to heal the mental aspect of it is the connection with mind, body, and soul. Thank you. You brought up something before and I wanted to go back to it. You talked about how Afrocentrism has been the basis for us to be able to do therapy and do work with many different cultures. And I wanted to add one piece to that that I know is true that often gets overlooked. And that is that Black people were raised to understand, take care of, and be careful of whiteness. It's from birth. You know what to do and what not to do. And it's why I'm so challenged when white people try to teach anti-racism, anti-Black racism, because it needs to be very specific for me to be able to be present for that because how do you teach something you literally have had no experience and what it feels like, what it is, how it has perpetrated your whole community, society, and history? I'm perplexed absolutely. by that. And I'm glad, absolutely, and I'm glad that you said what it feels like because I'm with you. I, it's still mind blowing to me. They need to do that and teach that amongst themselves. But 
on a nervous system level, you don't know what racism feels like. And you never will on a nervous system level. I don't care if you identify in a oppressed community because, you know, some folks are like, I get it because I'm queer. No, not the same thing. On a physical, on a physiological level, on a neurobiological level, you don't understand racism and you never will. And that is a huge part of racism that folks don't understand and they miss out on. Right. It's like I give this analogy all the time. Racism is always happening all the time. Right. And so it's never not happening. It's like a traumatic experience that happens to you and you are removed from that event and you're getting the support and the care and the help that you need. But you're not also still experiencing that traumatic event. Racism is trauma 24 seven there. We don't get a break from racism, right? So we are attempting to thrive, survive, live, do well, be here, have this conversation, all while still experiencing <laughs> racism. There is no break from it, right? So, of course, we have to be intentional to create opportunities and spaces where we can show up and be our full selves, right? And commune with our people. But there is no break from racism. It's a trauma that is happening constantly. I appreciate it. Thank you. So well said. I know you have taught parenting classes. So I wanted, before we wrap this up, I wanted you to speak on that through the lens of a Black clinician and a Black parent. And I emphasize Black clinician and Black parent because I just want to, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, what is necessary for raising healthier children in the time that we are in? Well, first, I want to say that The biggest thing for me, I've only been a parent for three years. So I've taught parenting classes for my whole career, but I've only been a parent for three years. And I will say that being a parent had kicked my passion for Black parenting and Black parent education into a billion overdrive. (laughs) I'll just say that. But what I will say is that my personal experience and my experience collectively is that we raise our children aggressively, historically, for certain reasons, right? Right. And I think that my biggest goal is to shift the narrative on that. We can love our babies so much. We can raise our babies in homes where there is an abundance of compassion, love, and just unconditional understanding. And the reason why that is so crucial and so important for Black parents in particular is that The world is not going to love our babies. The world is going to treat our babies horrifically. That's the reality. So if we are doing that at home, where is the safe haven for our babies, right? If we are also treating our babies like the world is going to treat them in an effort to prepare them for the world, we're actually doing a huge disservice to our babies. Now, I'm not saying that in the judgmental way. I get it. But there's there's too many resources. There's too much support for us to not shift that narrative, right? We have to start loving our babies in a way that, that we've never been loved before or that they've never been loved before. It's crucial because they're not going to get that. And me, at almost 40 years old, I think about, I want my 40-year-old baby in her sadness and whatever she's going through in life to be like, I can go home. 
I can call my mom and she's going to be that safe space for me. I can call my dad. He's going to be that safe space for me. And I feel like we as black parents, as black families, we are not operating from that mindset, creating safety, emotional safety, physical safety for our babies. It's crucial because they need a safe haven because they are not going to have a safe haven in this world. So that's a huge part. And just really teaching our children about racism and what that looks like age appropriately, of course, and like, you know, just having difficult conversations and disciplining our children in love, right? And shifting the narrative. We do not have to hit our children. We do not have to be physical with our children. We don't have to yell at them, right? And so that is what I teach in my classes. I have a lot of different segments, but it's really healthy racial identity building, um, parenting school tools and skills for parents who just don't have, because we're just doing what our parents did, how they raised us, even though it was not effective and it caused us a lot of pain and trauma. We don't have any tools, so we just repeat the cycle. So I, my goal is really to shift the narrative. Like, Black babies deserve to grow up in homes that love and value them because they are not going to get that in this society. So can we just change the language a little bit to change the narratives? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. That's a shameless plug. Yes, and that's really what we need to do. We need to change the narrative. I don't like that it's the no, oh, black people spank their kids. That's just what they yeah. do. That's culturally, that's, and then we as black people even take that on as that's a part of our culture. There's a lot of things that we call culture that actually trauma. It's a part yeah. of our trauma. It's actually not cultural at all. You know what? I'm going to wrap up with where everybody can find you and all of your wonderfulness. But I do want to say one thing. I am in agreement with you. I'm also challenged by it, in all honesty, because I don't know that I would be prepared for this world the way that I have been had I not been raised with the Black parenting model that I know so well. I, I like appreciate you saying that. I appreciate you saying well, that. But that's how a lot of us think and believe. I know. And I think that we have to challenge that. I, I think we have to challenge it. that. I truly appreciate your perspective and I want to thank you so much for coming on today. You're so smart. You're so lovely. And you made thank it so you. easy to have you. this conversation and share the space. So thank you so much. And please let everybody know where they can find you. Healingblacksouls.org. That's my website. You can find me there and send me an email through my portal there. My email is my first name, Kiana, K-E-Y-O-N-I-A at healingblacksouls.org. You can send me an email directly. That's how you can find me. I'm also on Instagram, Healing Black Souls. It's healing underscore black underscore souls consulting on Instagram. Okay. We'll make sure that gets on the promo. And, okay. um, and once again, anything, any TikTok, any Twitter, any of the other situations that are out there? I have a love-hate relationship with social media. I know. So I'm not okay. old school, but I like internally I'm old school. <laughs> I feel I'm you. old school. <laughs> All right. I just want to tell you again, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and I appreciate thank everything you. that you shared with us today. Thank, thank you. you so thank much. you for having me. Absolutely. You. Take care. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye. Please be sure to like, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.